Thank you very much. It's great to be here. I appreciate everybody coming out this morning. You didn't know you were going to get me, so how lucky are you? Very lucky. My wife, Susan, we've been married nearly 37 years. Isn't she lucky as well? Very lucky. We have three adult children, and um, we actually only live up the road. We are part of a church here in Melbourne that has two campuses, one in Box Hill, one in Bundura. But both Sue and I work for Alpha Australia. So how many people have done Alpha at any stage? Fantastic. Do you know we are developing some Australian content for Alpha? In fact, just this week, we released the Australian edition of Alpha. So over summer, we were filming some street talks, so just interviewing people on the street about what they think about faith, is there a God, if God exists, what question could you, would you want to ask him, um, what is prayer, you know, all those sort of things. And we have edited that, that in to the regular Alpha film series with Nicky Gumbel. So if you've never done Alpha at any stage, I'd love for you to do it. It's an easy invite to ask someone who's never thought about God or have never had a conversation. Do you know, McCrindle did some research recently and they found out that 49% of Australians don't have a spiritual conversation in a single year, but they want to. No one's actually talking to them. And so it's actually not a hard thing to invite. In our church here in Melbourne, we run Alpha twice a year. We kicked it off last week straight after Easter, um, and it's going very, very well. It's such an easy thing to run because all the gospel presentations done on video, and all you do is provide some food and also have an open discussion without any judgment. So I'll show you a little clip of our new version called the Aussie edition of the Alpha Film series. Thank you. In the modern world, there's not much space for life's big questions. I don't know. Where am I going in the future? Not much time set aside for, why am I here? I think we were actually made for this life, we were made for a life beyond this. Is there more to life than this? Some people dream of finding happiness through money. Shopping all the time. Something awakened in me. It was a realization I would never find happiness where I was looking for it. Where's God in all of this? I believe humanity needs to believe in something. Why do bad things happen? What's the deepest human need? Why create the world? We all have different perspectives on the meaning of life. I don't know. There's got to be more to it. I've seen more than that. Alpha is a place where you can be yourself, say what you think, and challenge everything. Each episode unpacks a new topic and gives you time to explore what you think. Try Alpha. It's, uh, we've also got some new youth stuff, which I'll show tonight. Um, I'm coming back tonight, so I hope I do well this morning. <laughs> hey, listen, I know a couple of people here. I can see Lisa over there and Laurel. We used to work together at Youth for Christ. And, uh, in fact, we went to Africa together. And so it's great to see you guys and a few other familiar faces. Um, so, yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much for the invite to come along. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to open to John chapter 9. And I'm going to talk to you about a particular topic that is a bit of a passion of mine called the problem with religious expectations and rules. Now, not the Christians have them, right? We don't really have any expectations or religious rules. And... I know from my journey as a Christian since uh, giving my life to God as a teenager and you know, now that I'm in my late 50s, that they're, they're pretty easy to pick up. Rules that we think 
carry some sort of godly element or Christian tone, but in actual fact probably create barriers for people who are either new to the faith, not churchgoers whatsoever, or even for some of us in the church family. With, with Alpha, one of the, the stories that we have in our church recently, we, we had a guy come to our Alpha. He was an immigrant from Iran. And he has an incredible story where God, unknowingly to him at the time, was speaking to him about who he was. So obviously post coming to Australia and coming to Alpha at, at our church, he was telling me that when he was in Iran, he was realising that there, there must be other religions out there than the one that he was following. And so he did all this research trying to find out, you know, which God really does exist. Then he thought, I'm going to go to another country. Now, how's this, right? I'm going to go to another country and find out what other gods are out there. That was his thinking. So he applied to a couple of countries, got accepted to come to Australia, and um, he loves to do a little bit of swimming as exercise. So only been here a few months, went to the local swimming pool. He went up to the lifeguard at the swimming pool here in Melbourne and said to him, what sort of God do you follow? <laughs> can, you, can you imagine? This man was not a Christian. And he goes, oh, I don't know. You know, like, you know, typical sort of Aussie male, I don't know. Go and ask that guy over there, pointing to one of the congregation members from our church. He goes to something. Go and ask him. So... He, went, he did. He went up and asked the same sort of question. What sort of God do Australians follow? And so uh, our friend, who's part of our church, invited him to come to Alpha. And he came to faith. He got filled with the Holy Spirit on Alpha. Because here's the thing. You can't deny an experience with God. It doesn't matter what's in your head on why God doesn't exist or why is there suffering or whatever questions, by the way, which we all have, right? We all have questions about faith and God. It doesn't matter how long you're a Christian. But what you can't argue against is an experience and an encounter with God. And that's exactly what happened to, to him. Now he's now part of our church. We're helping to disciple him. He comes over for dinner. and He's a great young man. But how's, how, how is that? God takes a man from Iran and brings him to Australia. But here's part of the challenge is when he comes into our church, do we make it easy for someone like that who's from a different faith, different culture, does he experience unwritten expectations of rules? I don't know if you've noticed, but wherever people gather and live, work, you have to have a sort of systemic approach to how to do life together. It's not that we don't need some sort of structure or rules. We definitely do need them. But I, what, I, what I want to challenge all of us to think through today is when it comes to Christianity, are all of our expectations and unwritten rules is probably a better way of saying it, are they really godly or not? Because if we're creating sort of barriers to um, faith or people actually being part of our church family wherever we are, then maybe they're not truly from God. Now look, when you don't really know unwritten rules until you break them unknowingly, right? So not long ago, I went to a church and I sat in the wrong chair <laughs> as a visitor, right? Didn't know that's someone else's chair. Now, I'm sure that doesn't happen at one church, right, where people sit in the same chairs. Um, you go into someone's family home and you sit in, like, Dad's chair. And again, you don't know, but everyone sort of, you know, the atmosphere changes. Like, 
Often the only way we discover what expectations and rules people have, whether it's at work, school, university, church, family homes, sporting clubs, is when you break them because you're unaware of them. And we can do the same. But one of the challenges is, I think for Christians, we have to seriously ask ourselves, are we worshipping a rule or are we worshipping God? Because sometimes rules, you know, you can't move things in the church building, you can't move the flowers or the piano or, you know, all that sort of, you know, all those sort of things. But then we have our own religious expectations. And here's the thing, it's not a new problem. Jesus actually encountered this particular problem and that's what we're going to look at in John chapter 9. So I want you to open your, if you've got, I I still carry a hard copy uh, of a Bible, but open your smart device if you don't have a hard copy, because we are going to read through a little bit of John 9 and 10, because there's this narrative arc that John includes in the story. He wants us to understand the issue that creates this sort of dilemma or drama that Jesus ends up quoting some things that we probably already know. If you've been in church life for any length of time, you would have heard John 10.10. So when Jesus says, the thief comes to kill steal and destroy. Often that gets related to Satan or the devil, but in context, that's not what Jesus is talking about. And so I want to sort of unpack not, not really what, what happens at the end, where he talks about him being the gate and the good shepherd and the thieves coming to steal and destroy, but what instigates this conversation in this teaching by Jesus? So religious rules and expectations, they're, they're probably as old as humanity, They happen all the time, and one of them is actually the cause of this conflict that Jesus is having with the Pharisees in John 9 and John 10. So if you open your Bibles in John 9, verse 1, you can see there that Jesus is travelling through a village, they come across a blind man, and what happens is Jesus heals the blind man. Let's let's read it together. Now, because I'm in my late 50s, I have to get my glasses out now. I think I'm I'm considering carrying a microscope with me when I speak as well because it's getting further and further away. So verse 1 of chapter 9 in John's Gospel. As he went along, he saw a man who was blind from birth. His disciples asked him, this is an alpha question, by the way, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Well, neither this man or his parents sinned. That'll blow your theological thinking out of the water, right? Jesus says, but this happened that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it's today, we must do the work of the one who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Now, verse 6 is important. Having said this, Jesus spits on the ground, makes some mud with his saliva, and puts it on the man's eyes. How's that for a healing ministry technique? Hey, that would go down well today, wouldn't it? Then he says to the man, so he's made some little paste out of the dirt and he spit, puts it on the man's eyes, and verse 7, he says to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and watched, came home seeing. His neighbours who, and those who had obviously knew him as a beggar, because obviously there's no social structure to look after him, he has to beg to make any money, they say, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Verse 9, some claimed it was, others said, no, it just looks like him. But he himself, 
so the man that now can see, insisted, that's me. How then were your eyes open, they demand. Verse 11, he replies, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes, told me to go and wash in the pool. I went and washed, and then I can see. Where is this man, they ask. So where's Jesus? He says, I don't know. Now, what, what I want you to hang on for, for to a minute just there is this man has never seen Jesus. Sometimes we forget that when we read this story. So he was blind. Jesus makes some mud out of his spit and the dirt, puts it on his eyes. He still can't see, tells him to go and wash. Jesus doesn't go with him. The man goes and wash. His eyes are open. He knows who it was that healed him, but he's never actually see, seen him. So when his friends and village neighbours say, well, where is this Jesus? He says, well, I don't know. He couldn't even recognise him. Verse 13 is interesting, and here's, here's really the, what we call a pivot. This is the, this is the drama that's going to clench the story here in verse 13. They bring, him, they bring this man to the Pharisees in verse 14. Now the day on which Jesus had made mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. Now, if, if you can, I want you to unline that or highlight that in your Bible. What John does, he doesn't tell us why that's important because his original readers and those that were sharing his gospel in the first century knew why that was important, that the day on which Jesus made mud was a Sabbath. There's not, he doesn't explain it for us 2,000 years later. But here's the thing that we know from archaeology, um, discovering fragments um, of teachings by rabbis in the time of Jesus. The Pharisees had a list of rules and religious expectations that they enforced on every person who worshipped the synagogue. They weren't actually in the Bible. They weren't in their Old Testament. They weren't part of the commandments. Now, we often hear about 10 commandments. There are actually 613 in total, um, much more than 10. There were 10 big ones, obviously. But the other ones were like ceremonial laws of cleansing, keeping themselves separate or holy. Effectively, before they enter into the promised land, they have to get this whole thing of the Egyptian culture out of them and only worship the one true God, Yahweh. And so a lot of those ceremonial laws that 613 of them, were very important because it was part of them shifting out of the way they had been living in a culture that, in Egypt that had many gods. Now, over the years, let's, I'm not going to bash the Pharisees in a sense because really they had a good intention. Over the years, what happened was, you know, they were in exile after that. Jeremiah, Nehemiah, they'd come back, rebuilt the temple. Ezra is the one that re-delivers the word of God to them again when they return to Jerusalem. And so now when we get to this story where Jesus is in this village of Bethsaida and heals this blind man, there's been this sort of few hundred years, probably four or five hundred years, of pharisaical, let's reinterpret those 613 laws that we find in the ancient scriptures and apply them in practice today for our people who have returned to Jerusalem after the exile and rebuilt the temple. Let's help the common people who worship Yahweh stay holy and righteous. And so we've discovered, you know, you've probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in 1947 in Israel. In some of that is this pharisaical laws, these religious expectations. So again, I want you to understand 
They're not part of the sacred scripture text that we hang on to, or even that really a lot of the Jews hung on to. These were like reinterpretations, but they became religious laws and rules if you wanted to attend synagogue. So I can tell you a couple of them that we know from discoveries of these ancient manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts. If you're a tailor, that was your living, and Sabbath kicks in at, you know, dusk, so 6pm on a Friday, and you had your sewing needle stuck in your pocket, you're breaking the Sabbath. So that was one of their laws, right? If Sabbath came on and you had not already lit your oil lamp to provide some light, you couldn't light it. So you spent Sabbath, the first part of Sabbath is dark, right? In the dark. If you got some mud on your clothing, and they only had one piece of clothing, not like us today, you couldn't actually scrape the mud off because that was work. That was, they called it reaping. That's the way they interpret it. So you couldn't do that. You had to wait for the mud to dry, and then you had one chance to scrape it off. You're going to do it once. Now, can you imagine if your church had all these rules, by the way? Because this is what it was like in the synagogues of Bethsaida, the Sea of Galilee, the temple in Jerusalem. These aren't actually direct laws from God, but if you're attending and worshipping and want to, you hunger and thirst after following God, but your religious leaders have these extra set, in fact, hundreds, we don't know them all, but we know there are, there are hundreds we've discovered that were enforced on people trying to worship God at synagogue as if they were directly from God. Now, why is it important that Jesus made mud on the Sabbath? Well, one of the other rules we know is you could not make mud on the Sabbath. So how's this? This is, this is great religious thinking. They had a rule, the Pharisees, that you could actually spit on the Sabbath. I'm not encouraging you to do that, by the way. But you could do it. But here's the, here's the uh, clarifying disclaimer. Your spit had to land on a rock because if it landed on the ground, now you never thought you'd be talking about spit on Sunday morning at church, I know, but if it landed on the ground, that made mud, and this is, this is their reasoning we know from archaeology discoveries, that reminds us of slavery and making bricks in Egypt, that's work, that's breaking the Sabbath. Right, that's their thinking, right? So this, this is the time that Jesus is born, there's a whole stack of religious expectations and rules that actually don't come from God, but they're couched, they've got the tone as if they do. So this is why that verse is important. This is why John says, the day that Jesus made mud and healed the man was on the Sabbath. And that's why the Pharisees want to get involved, because Jesus broke one of their rules. And this leads to this whole, I mean, if you read the gospel, any of the gospels, this sort of continuing conflict, one story after another between uh, the Pharisees or the Sadducees with Jesus. And this one is about this rule that actually makes no sense. And not only that, it doesn't reflect the heart of God in any way, shape or form. But if you were just attending as a regular worshipper and a person that loved God, you were enforced to follow all these rules that really were not part of what God intended at all. So here we have this conflict about to take place. So I want you to follow the narrative arc because it's important to understand why Jesus ends up saying what he does. So here we go. Verse 13, they bring the man, the Pharisees, 
And verse 14, because the day on which Jesus made mud and opened his eyes were the Sabbath. So you now know that's the pivotal verse here in the drama. Jesus broke a Sabbath rule by spitting and making mud because that was interpreted as work. So therefore, the Pharisees also asked the man how he received his sight. And so look at um, verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. So there's there's the clue again. Jesus broke the Sabbath. Others at the synagogue said, well, how can a sinner do such miracles? Great question, right? So they're divided. Verse 17, finally they turned to the blind man and said, what do you have to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. So the man says he's a prophet. Verse 18, the Jews still do not believe that he'd been blind and he received his sight. So they sent for the man's parents. Now this is where it gets very funny. Um, Just a disclaimer, this part of scripture is not a parenting course um, because his parents don't actually help him at all. (laughs) So You can see the the Pharisees have control over everything that happens in a religious setting. Jesus has broken a rule, the man's been healed, and they don't believe that either he was really blind or that that miracle took place. They don't even believe what the man's telling them, so now they call for his parents to come. And so let's have a listen to this little part of the story, which always makes me giggle. Verse 20. We know he's our son, the parents' answers, and we know that he was born blind. So they're validating he really was blind. And we, verse 21, but how he can see, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. They they weren't with him. They say, ask him, he's an adult, right? He's of age. He speaks for himself. Now look at verse 22. His parents say this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already... They had decided that anyone who acknowledges that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of synagogue. And that's why his parents said, ask him, he's of age. So his parents, well, in fact, probably the whole village, have already heard anyone at synagogue, in our language, anyone at church, who says that Jesus is the anointed chosen one of God to bring salvation, you're out. Now, this is in a culture, by the way, where, you know, if you're not really happy at one church, you can go down the road to the next church. There's only one synagogue in town. So if you can't go to that one, you don't go to any synagogue. We don't live in the same cultural context as they do. There's only one place you can worship God. And so if you get kicked out of that place for breaking one of their religious expectations and rules, you can't go anywhere else. I want you to feel that drama. This is the issue why the parents don't really support him. They basically say, yes, he was blind. We weren't there when his eyes were opened. Um, He's old enough to be a witness. You ask him. They're not very good parents. It's not a good parenting skill, of course. So then the Pharisees go back and argue with the man again. And that doesn't go well. It goes downhill from there. And so the man basically says, well, I've already told you what happened, weren't you listening? Uh, which is not a very good way to speak to your leadership, right? And so they, get, they say, how dare you lecture us? We follow Moses. We don't know who you follow. And, you know, you've got this great line um, towards the end of this argument where, look at verse 28, they hurl insults at the man. They say, you know, you are his fellow's disciples. We're disciples of Moses. The man answers in verse 30. Now, that's remarkable, 
You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to a godly man, and, he, and no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a man born blind. If he's not from God, he could do nothing. So look at verse 34. This connects to verse 22. To this they said to him, you're steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they throw him out of synagogue. He's kicked out. Can't go. Can't go back. Can you imagine being going through this whole thing of you've been blind for probably over 30 years. He's probably at least 30 years old. He's begged most of his life to get any sort of food. And he gets healed and now is in trouble with the religious elite about the fact that he got healed on the Sabbath. And because they don't accept his story, they exclude him from coming to synagogue. That miracle didn't work out too well, did it? Hey, You would think the opposite would happen. Now, here's the interesting thing. Look at the very next verse. Jesus hears what happened to the man. So Jesus is already off in another village, preaching, ministering. But word gets back to Jesus what happened to this man. And what, what really grabs my attention is Jesus representing God knowing these are religious expectations that rules that have nothing to do with God, Jesus stops what, he, what he's been doing and goes back and finds the man. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Jesus is so concerned that he's been excluded from the one place he can worship the Father that he goes back to find the man. And so let's look at that. Jesus heard, verse 35, they'd thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now he's talking to the man whose eyes he opened. The Son of Man is Jesus' favourite title for himself. We often call him the Son of God. That's in the Gospels. It's legitimate. But the common phrase he uses about himself is out of the book of Daniel, which is about the one that would come and deliver and bring salvation to the earth, Son of Man. Now verse 36, the man who's been healed says, Who is he, sir? Now remember, the man's never seen Jesus up until this conversation. We don't know it's a few days later, a week later, a month later. We, we don't really know what the distance is between the man being thrown out of synagogue and can't go back to worship God and when Jesus actually gets back to find him. But we know that Jesus makes it a priority to go and find him. But he doesn't, he's never seen Jesus until today, until this part of the story. And so verse 37, he says, well, I don't... Tell me who he is. Who is this son of man that I can believe? Jesus says, now you've seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Jesus identifies himself. So the man says, Lord, I believed, and he worships Jesus. Now, look at this next verse. Jesus says, for judgment I've come into the world. Now listen to this way he uses language. So the blind will see, which is what happened literally, and those who see will become blind. Those who have religious rules and expectations, who think they're godly, who think they're being spiritual, by excluding people from getting to God, they'll become blind. Now, verse 40 is where we launch into this whole teaching around being the gate, the good shepherd, thieves. Some Pharisees who were with in the crowd, they hear what Jesus says about being blind. 
Now, here's a rule. Never ask Jesus a question you don't really want the answer to, right? So verse, four, verse 40, they say, what, are we blind too? Which, of course, is a hyper, it's a hyper, you know, what do you call it? It's a question you know the answer to when you ask it. So Jesus says, well, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty. But the fact that you claim you can see, I'm telling you the truth, your guilt remains. Wow. I don't know about you, when I read that, and I put myself in the Pharisees part of this story, because we can all sometimes go there unintentionally, sometimes intentionally, that cuts. Like that, that, really, that really convicts and goes deep. Because part of what we should be doing as a faith community, representing God right here in this part of Melbourne, is to reflect the love of God and not create rules that sound spiritual and Christian, but in fact keep people away from God. That's the problem with religious rules and expectations. And we know it through this whole drama that John's meticulously recorded each step of this story that leads to this teaching around Jesus saying, well, I'm the only gate, I'm the only good shepherd, and everyone else who says they are is a thief. That's the problem. So I've got, I've got a couple of things here. Have a look at these. Three things that, I mean, there's probably more, but, you know, with time limited and stuff, we could really unpack this if we had a conversation. I've included a study guide if you want it. I'm sure uh, your church will give it to you. I've handed it on to them. But these are things, I think, around why we should re-examine our own hearts and our own way of doing things as Christians because, well, they just keep people away from God. I mean, in this story... He's kicked out. The man's kicked out of synagogue. And that's what makes Jesus go and find him, to re-include him, to bring him back and say, hey, that doesn't represent the Father. That doesn't represent me. And so Jesus wants to make sure that we are actually not keeping people away from God, either intentionally or unintentionally. Another thing I thought of when I was reading this is, most of our spiritual rules that we think come from God but don't, they're really blind like the Pharisees in this story. I think this is what happens. You know, let me be honest here. It's not as if we sit down one day and think, how can we come up with a whole bunch of 150 new Christian rules? That's not our approach, right? But what happens is sometimes we, we try to manage things in a way that look and sound more Christian, but in actual fact they make it very difficult for someone to access the Jesus that we know and the God that we worship. And it's unintentional, it sort of morphs. I think often, usually the original intent of any unwritten religious expectation, whether it's from your family or from a worshipping community or whether it's, you know, think of in a business or a workplace, any, any rule that becomes... Well, it doesn't help anymore. At some point it probably served a purpose that was needed... But maybe today we should jettison and reject that because it no longer serves the purpose. And I think that it, dynamically, I think that's what happens. We set up rules that serves people in some way at that point in time. But then after that, if we elevate that rule to the position of where God is, but that rule is now actually hurting, harming or excluding people, well, that rule is no longer serving a purpose. And in effect, we don't realise it, but we're worshipping the rule more than the God. So I think often they come out of good intention. So like historically, 
all these extra rules the Pharisees had came from the period where the second temple was built and they're trying to help those coming back from Babylon to, to only follow Yahweh and to live a righteous life. So again, the intention's good. But over the centuries before Jesus arrives on earth, they'd morphed into so many ridiculous rules that just excluded people and they just don't reflect the love of God for a start. And that's why if you read chapter 10, which most Christians know very well, where Jesus says, I'm the only gate. Anyone who wants to come only has to come through me. And in fact, anyone else that comes or says they're the way in, they're a thief, a robber, and the effect of doing that is to kill and destroy. So Jesus is talking about the Pharisees' rules and religious expectations. So let me wrap it up for you, because really what I wanted to do, I hope you still love me at the end of this, by the way, but challenge you to think through, as I challenge myself, I never speak anything I've not wrestled with myself. It's one of my little rules in my head. But challenge yourself, what religious expectations and rules do I have? Because here's, here's the issue. I think often we inherit them. So either if you're brought up in a Christian home um, or maybe the first Christian um, group or community you connected with or belong to, you just sort of take on the culture of that group. And we never stop to reassess, are they effective? And probably more importantly, do they reflect the love and the grace and mercy of God? Because <laughs> we know... We know at least in our heads, God is love. We know John 3.16, for God so loved who? The world. Not Christians, not Yahweh followers, everyone. So we, we often, I think we misread that verse. In fact, in Greek it says God loves the cosmos, his creation, that he sent his one and only son and again, there's a play on words there. It could also be interpreted in English as his unique son. The main thing about God is his love. And we're all dependent on his grace, are we not? But, you know, as we, as we sort of age as Christians, I think we can unintentionally morph into this really rigid, we've got all these expectations and spiritual and Christian-looking rules that we think are godly, but in fact they're not. They don't elevate the love, the grace, and the mercy of God. And that's really what we should be all about. Now, do we need a system so we all know how we're going to worship together, how things function? Absolutely. But we should be reevaluating in our own hearts. And not, I'm not just talking as a whole church community, but even as individuals. A good way of thinking about it is... If you talk to someone who's never been to a church service or never heard about who Jesus is, how do they hear what you say? How do they see the way you live? Do you make it easy for them to have access? So in my personal story, when I was studying this some years ago and really getting into this concept of, actually, I've got religious rules and expectations... I realise this is sort of how the Holy Spirit prompted me, for me myself, is I'm not the gate for other people to get to God. I'm not the rule keeper. And neither should any one of us be. The only gate, according to Jesus, is him. 
So let's be a little bit practical. That means you don't get to choose who comes in to Christianity and the kingdom of God. He does. But sometimes we can act like gatekeepers unintentionally, but we've got all these things and that person doesn't do that and why are they doing that and they shouldn't be doing that as a Christian. We have a whole lot of religious rules and expectations, but I think when we do that, we unintentionally put ourselves in the role of being the gatekeeper. And you can read the rest of the chapter, chapter 10, where Jesus clearly says, I'm the only gate, I'm the good shepherd. In other words, there are bad shepherds, in this context, Pharisees with all their rules, but think about us. Think about you. We can be bad shepherds by having all these rules that don't reflect the love and grace of God. Just close your eyes for a moment. We're going to ask God to come and speak to us as individuals. Father, I pray, this is not just words. This is just not going through the motions as a service dedicated to worshipping you, but your Holy Spirit comes now and speaks to us as your children. My prayer is, Father, you would help us to eradicate, remove, reevaluate spiritual rules that maybe exist from our family of origin or maybe from previous communities of faith that don't reflect your love, grace and mercy. I remind all myself and everyone who's listening to this, that you are the only way. You're the great good shepherd. You're the gatekeeper to the kingdom of God. And we came in through the same grace and mercy that everybody else does. And even though we have followed you for maybe many years, we are still dependent on that grace. So, Father, long beyond this moment has gone, even into tomorrow, next week, will you prompt us, even convict us, rebuke us, change us? Are there any religious rules that we need to just just throw off and, and cut away and remove? In submission to you, Father God, I pray that you transform us from the inside. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.